0: There, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app and let's get growing. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast. It is Monday, Martin Luther King Day in 2019, January 21st, 2019, and I have an amazing guest on the line that I know. You are just going to love her story. I've been reading her blog. She blogs at Earthly Delights Farm. But I um, invited her here because she also runs the Snake River Seed Co-op that was recommended on my podcast. And so to tell us her amazing garden journey and farming journey is Casey O'Leary. So welcome to the show, Casey. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Now, you're in Boise, Idaho. I am yeah I'm in Boise
1: I um let's see so I have a uh I don't own my own land but I farm um on a 3 acre property uh in the city limits of Boise um I farm about an acre and a half of that and then I share my farm space with um the landowner who runs a nursery on it as well as a couple of other small farm projects um and on our farm we grow um we grow about a hundred varieties of seed crops a year for the snake river seed co-op. And then we also run a CSA program, which I have been doing for the last like 15 years. I've been running a summer, you know, spring and summer, 18 week CSA um, with about 45 members. But this year I'm changing it up quite a bit and um, going a little bit of a different route, We're on our CSA program this year, we're just going to do a fall CSA pickup. So it's going to be one, um, one big pickup in the fall of storage crops and then instructions on how to store them, um, as well as offering some spring garden box and summer garden box shares for people who have like small urban gardens. We've designed these like four foot by four foot garden boxes and we're giving them all the seeds and starts that they need to, to make those really productive just on a very small urban scale. Um, Okay.
0: Wait, what's, cause I was reading about this and I so want, and just hearing you talk about it, just making it come into my head easier, but like, so you're actually giving them a four by four wooden garden bed that they like take home the actual like lumber Or just the stuff that goes inside of it. (laughs) Just
1: the stuff that goes inside of it. So we're assuming that they already have the boxes built at their house and that they already have soil in those boxes. And that's a it's a pretty common thing for urban gardeners to have some sort of a, you know, four by four or four by eight box. So we're assuming they already have that and this is just a way for them to maximize the food they can get out of it and use locally grown seeds and starts to do do that if they want to.
0: And is this your first year offering that or have you done that in the past? it's our very first year of offering it and the
1: reason is just I can I mean we can it's an interesting um, you had mentioned that you're you think that many of your listeners are probably interested in starting market farms and I can say that um, I'm in an interesting place with my market farm. I, um, I've been running my market farm for about 15 years and I actually am, I'm am getting into a place where I'm a little bit burnt out on it. Um, and so I have in the past run this, you know, really massive internship program that's really involved. And, um, and I've run this, like I said, a C- CSA that's really involved and, um, just a lot of moving pieces and a lot of, um, really serious commitment all summer long and, um, all season long really. And, um, and I just, I've been wanting a little bit of a break, maybe not exactly, you know, I mean, as farmers, we can't just take time off exactly in the summer, but even just not having to harvest for CSA every single week, um, would feel really nice to me. And so, um, So, I'm trying these new offerings as a way to sort of provide myself a little more flexibility this season and just see how that goes. Um, So, yeah, the garden box thing, it's the first time we've offered it. And it's a way for, you know, we already grow all of our own starts and do our own seeds and stuff on our farm. And so, um, and I've gotten, you know, decent at doing that. And so it seemed like a fun idea to offer that to other people um, and see if there were any takers. And then the same thing with the fall CSA, you know, that. Instead of having to harvest for people and succession plant for people every week from May through September, this way I can just do, you know, for growing carrots and potatoes and onions and garlic and, you know, just beets and those kind of just root storage crops, my hope is that I can do the work of growing those on a little less rigorous schedule. And, you know, if I want to take a few days and I want to go camping or whatever, I can do that. I'm not locked into... You know, harvesting and distributing produce every single week and doing it this one, this one pickup in the fall, I'm hoping will just uh, ease my constant need to be on the farm. And I'm not sure if I'll like it. You know, I might miss it. I I might not know what to do with myself without a very rigorous farm schedule, but I'm excited about trying it out.
0: Uh, you have no idea how timely this is because I've been working on this like free garden course and this workbook to go with it. And just this weekend as I'm finishing it up and trying to think of like, um, one to done, how to get my listeners from like starting their own organic oasis to feeling like at the end of this fall, they're living in their own organic oasis, even if it's not. Where they want to be when they're done and one of the things i wrote about i wrote a whole page this weekend about being honest with your time commitment thinking about are you going to be because that's part of why when i was telling you in the pre-chat my husband is more the gardener and i've always been more the eater and not because for one i usually have a full-time job going so there could be days where like five days will go by and i can't even see the garden in the daylight and that's even in montana Uh, where we have pretty long days. And then other times, like I want to go hiking, like the commitment to be able to watering. And so I wrote a whole thing about like, you know, maybe if you're, especially if you're beginning, starting with like spring crops. And then the other thing is I've always thought, because the other situation we have at our house is we have very limited water, but when do you get a lot of water in the spring? And also like, I feel like there's a very limited selection of organic starts and like starts that I'd want to put local starts that I'd want to put in my garden. I don't like to have to go to like the big box stores down in Kalispell to um get those. So I think like f- for a business idea, like that might be something. And it's something I've always told my husband while we were building up before we drilled our big well, that that could be a good business for us to start out with um selling starts so I'm so curious to see how it goes and then you know boxes are so big these days uh you know so I think it's a great idea to have that garden box idea and then but the one I was excited about you actually giving them the wooden thing because I feel like a lot of my listeners that I've talked to that's one of their barriers is having those deep beds um, yeah. put into place. So sorry, I didn't mean to like go on there, but I've, I just feel like you're dropping golden seeds. That's what I talk about when my guests share something that's really invaluable. And then talking about your journey and being honest about it. And I was reading that you're like going to go off to school. Like I really want to get my master's besides. So I know like the transition, um, and things like that too.
1: Yeah. And you know, I think that, um, you know when we start farm I mean I started my farm when I was like twenty four or twenty five or something like that, and um you know, my farm model has very much continued in the in the model of a twenty four year old and i'm you know, I'm gonna turn forty this year and i I need a little more grown up <laughs> I need a little more grown up model, I need something that isn't quite so scrappy and you know quite so hanging on by the seat of my pants. Cause like I said, you know, I don't own my own land and I'm sure for many of your listeners, that's an issue. If they want to start a farm is that um, farmland, I mean, that's the biggest issue for young beginning farmers is that is the access to farmland. And um, so, you know, in my city, everything is really expensive. I think we're the fastest growing city in the country in, in 2017 or 2018. So we just have tons and tons and tons and tons of people moving here every day. And they have a lot more money than we have in Idaho. I mean, they're moving from wealthier places, California and uh, Bay Area and Washington and Seattle area and stuff. And
0: Is they that have because so much of money, the they- fires or just uh, population mm-hmm. explosion or what's going on in Boise? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh? Nothing.
1: <laughs> Nothing's going on. There's nothing to see here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think people are just looking for a change, quality of life differences. You know, there's less people. It's... Nice weather and whatever. But yeah, and then so people also
0: are also like that growing number of people who can work from home through technology, I think, maybe. Yeah, exactly.
1: And they can make the same wages that they would be making for living in Seattle, but they're doing it in a place that has a much lower cost of living. And so it's really been driving up land prices for those of us who live here and work for Idaho wages. We don't, um, mm-hmm. gosh, I want to say I just read something about Idaho being like 48th in the country or something for the per capita. Uh, wage for employees in Idaho. So, I mean, you know, we don't make much money here and uh, it's hard to figure that out when the land prices, you know, especially, and I mean, because it's a city, there's a lot of pressure to develop land, uh, you know, to develop agricultural land into houses. And so, you know, if you can get developer prices for it, you certainly aren't interested in selling it to somebody at a price where they could make a living, they could pay the mortgage off of farming that land, you know. So we're in a weird little spot. It's a very similar spot to people all over the country. This is not anything new. But, um, but yeah, it makes it hard to figure out where you can go where you have some long-term security on a piece of land because I've gotten kicked off of a lot of pieces of land over the time that I've farmed. It's very difficult to pick up and move a farm to a new place, you know. I
0: imagine, I can't imagine doing that work on... I was so shocked that you didn't own your own place and that like you were it was paying enough to obviously rent a place from someone
1: yeah it doesn't yeah it's definitely a a scrappy business model
0: (laughs) so well you know I actually always start the show off asking about your very first gardening experience like were you a kid was it when you were 24 like who were you with and like what was like the first thing you remember growing Yeah, you know, um,
1: I do remember there was a raspberry patch at our house when we were kids. Um, It was very unruly and full of earwigs and not exactly pleasant. But, you know, you could get in there and get some raspberries. And um, I don't remember having gardens as as a growing up. I don't remember doing that at all. I think I got into doing it. um, I got into gardening through environmental activism uh, when I was like in college. I was spending a lot of time on Oh, I don't, you know, public lands issues and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, in Idaho, the political landscape is different than I am, as like my politics are. And so working on those issues always felt to me like just running my head into a brick wall, you know, like someone else was setting the agenda. And then I was wasting my time basically trying to shut them down and say, no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. No, no, no. And I just at some point was like, you know what, I just want to turn and run as fast as I can in the direction that I want to go, and then let someone else waste their time trying to shut me down. And I had been reading some stuff about CSAs and about, you know, just that whole kind of local food and how how valuable it was as an environmental choice, you know, to, to be more sustainable. And um, so I kind of got into it that way. And um, but I didn't know anything. Oh my gosh. My first gardens were horrible. And then, and then, uh, and I mean, you know, s- you still are so excited. I mean, anything you can manage to grow the first time, you know, is, is great. And then, you know, and then I would say, as I got more into seed saving, it was kind of the same thing with seed saving too. Like, um, just a lot of mistakes <laughs> so, and, uh, and, you know, learning about, you know, like I planted uh hopi blue corn and, uh, sweet corn right next to each other, which if you've ever done that as a gardener, you know that um, they cross pollinate with each other and you end up with blue corn and your sweet corn and sweet corn and your blue corn and neither of them is that good to eat. And um, so I did a lot of that in the beginning, (laughs) just learning how to, how to do it. But, um, but gosh, I mean, even though there were a lot of mistakes and a lot of failures, it still was such a satisfying way to spend my time. I mean, I remember riding my bike home from some of my first gardens and just being like, man, I feel like I'm like my 12 year old self. Like I'm just my best self right now. I'm, you know, happy. I feel free. I feel strong. I feel interested in what I'm looking at and what I'm doing. And yeah, it's just, uh, it really is a lifestyle commitment or a lifestyle change to, to start gardening and, um, yeah, so I'm I'm very grateful that I found it because I was an angsty person before that. And it's it's been uh real nice to <laughs> to find something that can ground me in and give me something meaningful to do with my time, particularly the seeds, you know, giving the seeds have been really useful in that way, just providing kind of a roadmap for a good life's work.
0: Wow. Well you are so eloquent. I feel like we have so much in common. Like when I met my husband, I left college. Feeling very similar. Like, why am I banging my head against the wall? And like, I just have to go somewhere. I'm like, I wanted to go live off grid. And my friends were all like, well, you should go plant trees. And that's where Mike and I met on a mountain planting trees for this, like uh, forest service crew. And just, that's kind of what we've always believed here is just, we want to like try to grow as much of our own food as we can be as local as we can. And you're just so young. I'm just so excited to hear this. Do you want to tell listeners a little bit about your biking thing? Cause like on your website, I love that, like your little logo of your bike, pulling your cart behind your and so that's the way, like you, you really believe in bike power. Like, is that something you can do in Boise? You can ride your bike pretty easy.
1: Yeah, Boise is a great bike friendly city, and um, and I was, I will, I will be honest in saying that as I've gotten older, the biking has not been as much of a crucial part of the farm as it was when I was younger. But yeah, when we were for the first probably ten years that I farmed, we did almost everything by bike. I mean, we moved. We have these huge bike trailers, like eight foot long bike trailers. I would move chickens, straw bales, manure, produce, like a whole farmer's market set up, you know, with the tents and tables and everything. We'd pedal those around by bike. And um, it was a really, really fun way to get around. And just as I've, I think. How you know... far
0: was it from your farm to the <laughs> farmer's market? Like well, at that a couple time, of blocks for... or like a mile or like. Yeah, a couple of miles we have. I mean, I've had
1: I have I now have one piece of land that I farm only, but always before I was at, at the place I'm at now, I always had like two or three plots of land I was farming concurrently. So, you know, we'd go between them. And so, you know, many in the very beginning, they weren't all in the same neighborhood. But over time, I kind of concentrated them in the same neighborhood. So I'd have, you know, three. But those three would be within, you know. 10 blocks of each other or something like that. And then, um, but now I'm just at one place and it's, I think, two miles from my house. Um, and I have a dog that is kind of a pain in the neck now, and he has to be on a leash when, when I'm riding with him, he won't stay right next to me. So that has made it a little more annoying, frankly, to get around by bike. Plus, I don't know. I think as I'm getting older, I'm just, uh, It's one thing to pull, it's one thing to have myself, you know, it's another thing to pull a giant ass cart. Yeah. You know, I just feel like a horse kind of. So I have gotten lazier over the years and I've become more reliant on my little truck than I used to be. But the farm does still have its roots in human powered farming. When we very first started, it was very important to us to never use any fossil fuels for the stuff we were doing. And, um but that's given way at this point like I there's a tractor on the farm I'm at now I don't own it but I can use it and I've you know and I'll usually use it like you know maybe once a year on certain beds I'll you know till till under a cover crop or something instead of doing it by hand with a shovel which is really nice you know and especially on land you don't own you know we we when I first farmed I mean I think I double dug like an acre and a half of land over three different plots that I didn't own, and you know that just takes you know countless thousands of hours to do that. And um, you know when we got kicked off those pieces of land, it was like, oh man, this is horrible. <laughs> so now I'm I've gotten a little bit more, I don't know, I don't want to say lazier. I'll say older and wiser and more practical, I guess. But the farm, the the true authenticity of the farm, I think has suffered a little bit in that because. It was pretty hardcore when we were younger, but not now.
0: <laughs> do you uh, want to tell listeners a little bit about like your internship thing that you were doing? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I've done it.
1: Yeah, I've done it for ten years. Um, I took a class through the Uni- University of Idaho. There was a a little. Uh, they do a little thing. Um, it's called Cultivating Success, and it's a series of classes about this or that, you know, farming or beginning farming or stuff like that. And they offered a, far, a certified farmer mentor course. And I took it, um, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago or something like that. Um, it was just a day long thing where they kind of taught you how to outline a really good internship program on your farm and how to share the information that you, that you have in a way that Um, is respectful of people's time and you know gives them lots of good resources and doesn't just treat them like exploited free labor and so um I had set up a a internship program on my farm with a with a woman that I was farming with at that time um we set up this program together and we ran it for about three years together before we parted ways and I've continued it on for the last seven years since so I've done 10 years of this and over the 10 years I've um I've I've developed a really rad curriculum, in my opinion. It's really good. Like we go through everything from you know soil science, pollinators, seed production, vegetable production. um, You know, a lot of philosophical stuff. We read a lot of Wendell Berry and a lot of um, you know about permaculture and water use and all that stuff. And we try to combine that with hands-on farm work. But also, like we read articles every week and we have uh, group discussions every week. We share lunches every week. Um, we take field trips sometimes. We bring in guest speakers sometimes, and I try to just give them a really good overview of what a season on the farm looks like. And so they start in March and they go through October, um, and they come two days a week for uh, essentially five hours a day, which includes our time with our lunch time and discussion and all of our kind of classroom time as well as a couple of a few hours in the field. Um, And they, uh, they help with the CSA harvest and, um, and then, you know, so they kind of get to plan out a, a CSA crop. So if they take good notes through the internship, the idea is that after they're done, they could start their own CSA farm and they'd have the right, you know, seeding charts and kind of the harvest schedule and process and procedures and stuff like that. And then they do a bunch with seed production too. That's been, you know, as we've gotten more and more into growing seeds, that's been a huge part of what they do too. So they'll, take on responsibility for a certain family of crops. So like if they're the brassica family, brassicaceae family, then they'll save all the broccoli seeds and kale seeds and mustard seeds and bok choy and all that kind of stuff. And then they teach the other interns how to do those, to do those. And so you learn, you know, just about pollination and isolation and how to know when a seed's ready to harvest and how to thresh it and winnow it and clean it and get it all packaged up and ready to go. And, um, yeah, it's pretty comprehensive and it's pretty life changing for the people that do it. Um, but it is huge commitment on my part. And last year I just felt like I was getting a little burnout after doing it for 10 years. And I didn't feel like I was giving them a hundred percent of what I could give. And so I decided I should take a little break. So there's a little, little hole in our, in our community education scene right now when that, as that's kind of on hiatus right now, but, um, somebody will pick up the torch or I'll pick it up again once I get a little rest and we'll keep going. But yeah, I love the program and I think it's really valuable to, um, to provide that for people in a way that allows them to still have, I mean, because I'm in a city, it's possible to do this. I mean, if you're out in a rural area, obviously if you're going to have people on your farm, they probably need to live there and you probably need to provide them some sort of full-time work because, they can't go back and forth to their home. But for me, it's like people who live here can be my interns. They don't, I don't have to provide them housing. I don't have to figure out what they're going to do for their work. Basically, they're just with me for, you know, 10 hours a week, and they can figure out the rest of their life on their own. And I like that model a lot. You know, then they're not around all the time. It gives me time to do what I need to do on the farm. But it also gives them a time to have a full life outside of the farm so they don't ever feel, you know, exploited or you know, taking advantage of,
0: you know, I know a lot of my listeners have either done things like this or they're interested in doing things like this. Um, especially like even older people your age or my age, or even my husband's age, like, um, people who want to maybe have been gardening, but are afraid to take that CSA leap and, um, you know, just only having to commit 10 hours, a week is a lot different than thinking I'm going to sign up to do a full time woofing commitment or something or full time sign right. internship. People who, who do work full time, but getting to um, learn everything you're teaching. Like, my question, like I'm wondering, is like, what are you getting out of it? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot more. Oh, excuse me, a lot more teaching than you're actually getting labor. And then I also think you should do this online, like teach an online class, because so many people are interested in, in this knowledge that you have. Like you could have a very specific, high quality, pretty well-paying, I would think. Um, like, kind of like Melissa Norris does with the Pioneering Today. Like she has this Pioneering Today Academy she does that... Um, I think people would love hmm.
1: I've never checked that out I'm gonna look into it I um that I'm writing it down right now so I can remember to look into it <laughs> um yeah you know I appreciate you saying that <laughs> and I need to figure it out because that's one of the reasons why I needed to step away for a second you know I think um over time I've gotten to be a much better farmer but you start over with a brand new crew of people every year. So, uh, that's, it gets difficult, more difficult, I think over time. Um, you know, when I first started it, it was like, Oh, great. You know, people (laughs) here to help and I could put them to good work and we could figure it out. And then over time yeah, it's gotten a little bit where I'm ready to value my time. I think I've, you know, that's one of the parts of growing up I think is that you learn, when you actually do have something to offer you know and and that's a big challenge for farmers i think is to value their time and their expertise it's not very valued in society you know we we are often asked to do things for free we're always asked to you know go and talk here and go and teach here and you know da da, 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 da whatever and and it, it's there's very rarely opportunities to advocate for good wages for ourselves and in, in sharing this work so i really appreciate the encouragement to try to figure out how to (laughs) make some money doing that. Cause yeah, it's become a huge part of what I do and, um, and I love doing and it's, it would be great to kind of, that's part of what I'm saying when I say I need to get a a more adult model going here. Cause uh, cause yeah, it's it's time. It's time to, it's time to start to value uh, what I have to offer a little bit more than I have been in the past.
0: Well, the, great part about it is you have a lot of the work done. You already have your curriculum made out. You already have your outline. You already know what classes are going to, you're going to teach. You know what students need to learn. Like you've spent this time accumulating this knowledge you've made. Like you said, you've made so many mistakes. And then, um, for people to be able to walk away at the end of the summer and have that knowledge about, like, I wanted to ask you about like, what is the difference between growing for seed saving, as compared to growing vegetables for a CSA, like,
1: yeah, there must be yeah.
0: a huge difference, right? Yeah,
1: there's. I mean, you know, in some ways, I, in some ways, they can be just depending on your farm model, they can be really complementary, or they can be somewhat at odds with each other. So, like for example, um, we'll grow. I mean, gosh, there's so much that works well to do both. So so when we grow, say, a patch of lettuce for seed, we're growing, you know, say we're growing slow bolt lettuce for seed or something, right? And it's supposed to be a slow bolting variety. So I can plant out a huge bed of slow bolt lettuce. And the second I start to see something looking like it's going to bolt, I can harvest that and give it to the CSA and that allows me to select out the earliest bolting stuff, so I can keep selecting for a slower bolting seed population. Um, so the CSA gets lettuce; they get, you know, they get lettuce, and which is great. And they get, you know, our increasingly locally adapted lettuce too. So ours, you know, over time, our slow bolt lettuce sl- bolts slower here in Boise. Um, so our CSA members benefit from that. But then also it allows me to, you know, have somewhere to put all this food that I'm roguing or that I'm selecting out of my seed populations. I have a way to take that out of the field and immediately feed it to somebody, which is awesome. And then like with, you know, tomatoes or whatever, you know, we'll grow. Say we grow 40 varieties of tomatoes, and maybe you know, one week we take five of those varieties and we save them for seed. Um, and then the other 35 we give to the members and then the next week we switch to a different five varieties that we're saving for seed or whatever so they get a huge variety of food and we still get a huge variety of seeds but where it comes where it doesn't work is something like cucumbers for example like they they are cross-pollinating crops right so they need they need bees to to pollinate them. And as a CSA farmer, I don't really want to feed my CSA the same exact variety of cucumber all season long. So I can't really produce cucumber seeds on my farm because if I've got you know, four or five kinds of cucumbers I'm harvesting for my CSA, they're going to cross with my seed crop. And so I can't save seed off of them. I can't save pure seed off of a seed crop if I have a CSA like that. So, you know, but if you're a market, like if you just go to farmer's market, maybe you do just have one kind of cucumber that you take to farmer's market and you don't mind that it's the same one every time. And that would allow you to save a seed crop off of that same thing. So there's, you know, there's that kind of stuff that's different. There's so the isolation issues for seed crops are very different from CSA crops. You know, you have to be careful about what you allow to flower at what time. And, um, and then there's like a timing issue so, like seed, you have a potential to make a lot more money. Um, Selling so, seeds? like if I, yeah. So, like if I, so if I plant a bed of lettuce and I harvest a bed of lettuce, say I plant 40 lettuce heads or whatever, and I'm going to harvest all those and sell them at the farmer's market. Maybe I can sell them for $3 a piece or something, you know, um, then whatever, that's 120 bucks. Or if I let them go to seed, um, you know, they might make, I mean, I don't know exactly, but, you know, I might, they might make something like $250 worth of seed, the same 40 lettuce heads. So I could get more money on the seed, but they have to stay in the ground a lot longer to grow for seed. They have to stay in, you know, for, for a couple months longer than the lettuce heads would be in. Um, And then there's a whole process after, you know, so I have to weed them in the field and water them in the field for that much longer. But and then when I harvest them, then I also have to, you know, harvest them, clean them, you know, get the get the seed ready to sell. So that's it's kind of a, a different job, you know, a whole different job. But it's still, if you like the work of it, it is a way that you can really maximize the dollar value on a square foot of land, which is important in an urban garden, you know, to have, you know, as much money as you can get out of each little tiny space. And then by doing that, you are locally adapting. You're selecting those seeds and you're you're getting them to work better in your garden, which is perfect. And you're saving yourself the money of having to buy the seed. I mean, when I first was when I was first farming, I was probably spending you know $800 a year or something on seed. And now I I could in theory not spend anything on seed. We grow that much of our own seed that I could just not get anything new. But of course, I'm a gardener. You know, I gotta like try out all sorts of new stuff. So, you know, maybe I spend a hundred bucks on seed a year now, you know, just trying new things. So, I mean, it can save you a lot of money. And it's just, what I love about it is, you know, I think if I were still just trying to be a vegetable grower, um, I think I would have lost interest in my farm, but the seeds are so interesting. You know, like if you grow a radish for, for market or for CSA or whatever, It's cool. You know, you put the seed in the ground, you pull it out. It's a radish. It's cool. But if you let that radish stay in the ground and you let it go through its whole life cycle, it is so fun and interesting to watch it, you know, get huge and then send up a flower stalk, and then all the bees that come in and then the pods and the, I mean, it's just like, it's like letting, it's like as a gardener, you get to see your plant complete its whole life cycle and see it go through its whole life. And which is so much more interesting than just pulling it out and eating it when it's a tiny little root, you know?
0: And the other thing is like each one of those, like you can plant, so let's say you plant 30 radishes in a bed. If you let two of them go to seed, you still get the other 28. And then those two that go to seed are probably going to make a packet of seeds each, right? Like every, you know, it's just like a tomato. You get so many seeds out of one tomato because Mike lets a lot of things and you're so right like and you're I love the way that you describe it and it's just like you're like a little kid talking about how fun it is to see them and it's true and then sometimes you get volunteers that come up the next year that um are just sometimes can be hardier right yeah do you do absolutely. that like volunteers come up at all
1: yeah, I mean it depends on what we're doing. It can be a blessing and a curse. The volunteers can be. I mean, if we're, you know, like say, if one year I grew, like last year for example, I grew um, bok choy as a seed crop. Um, but the year before, I had grown uh, mizuna as a seed crop, and it's they're both Brassica rapas, so they'll cross pollinate with each other if they're flowering at the same time. So I had to be careful you know, as my bok choy was flowering to make sure I was scouring the area that I had grown the mizuna in the year before, which was, you know, on a different part of the farm, but still like, you know, little volunteers were coming up all the time. And so I had to make sure that none of them were flowering at the same time as my bok choy that I wanted to flower, you know, and so that they didn't cross pollinate in the field. But, um, but yeah, other than that, like, we, there's a lot of things we also do let volunteer and that we always, like our tomatillos at this point, I don't think I've planted tomatillos in eight years or something. You know, I just let them kind of seed out and do their own thing and I save seeds off of them and I also eat the food off of them and same with sunflowers and there's quite a few things that we do just let volunteer and from a definitely from a gardening standpoint, makes it a lot easier. <laughs> a lot of the flowers, it seems like, you know, we'll volunteer and, um, and we'll let those go. But with the, when it comes to the vegetables, I'm a lot more picky about what I actually let come up, the volunteers that I let come up just because of our, you know, because we're saving seed off of something else that year.
0: So I'm so curious about, like you said that you had different plots of land, like how did you find these places to garden? Since you said that one of the biggest problems people have is having farmland and then like, how did you connect with people that had land? Did you just go up to people and be like, hey, can I farm this? Or, like, did people advertise it? Or where did you find these spaces?
1: Yeah, usually it was something like that. I would ask, you know, my, um, the first plot of land we had for our farm uh, was a neighbor of mine. He, I just saw him outside. I didn't really know him. He had just bought the place and he had a little patch to the side that I think he thought he would develop at some point. Um, I think he bought it to split it in half and develop the other half and I've had several people actually like that where they own two lots and they build a house on one and then they're just waiting for the economy to pick up you know and then they build another house on the other one and sell it and um, so that was the first the first one I had was like that I just asked the guy what are you doing with this he said nothing and I said can I grow a farm on it he said yes but it was city water, which you know, in the beginning I didn't know. You know, you can't grow a farm on city water; it's way too expensive. You know, so after that I learned you have to look at, you know, places that already have a well or they have irrigation water of some type. You know, and so um, I guess for those of us who are in the West, we have to worry about that, worry about water. But I mean, I guess if your listeners are in other parts of the country where water just falls out of the sky, they don't have to worry about it as much. But um, yeah, so. And then I don't know we've gotten I had a couple of them I mean like my bike mechanic his dad was dating a woman who had had a big piece of land that she couldn't take care of and so I got that piece from her one of the pieces of land I farmed was a um was an intern on my farm the year that things were going south with a landowner I'd been at their place for 6 years and she was a she was an intern that same year and she was watching this you know relationship just unravel with the landowner and she said you should come and farm at my house and so I did. I, we came and farmed at her property, which was just a street over. She also had a big piece of land, and we were there for another six years. And um, so, yeah, just it just kind of depends on on the situation, you know. In an urban setting, it's a lot different than in a rural setting. Obviously, I mean, the land, the pieces are smaller as a general rule, and there's a lot of people in an urban setting that believe that their land is uh, would be great for a farm but it wouldn't be great for a farm you know it's a small piece of land you know it's you know a 10 by 20 area or something and they're like oh yeah you should start a farm here it's like, no that's for you to have a garden on is what that is or it'll be you know in the shade or something like that you know but they don't know what they're looking at they're urban people they don't know what would make a good garden plot and what wouldn't and so um for us you know over time i started to recognize because in the beginning I think I thought that like they were doing me a favor by letting me farm their land and um I you know I've I've been a landscaper I was a landscaper for a long time too I ran a landscaping business as well kind of to pay for my farming habit and uh <laughs> and my <laughs> and my landscaping you know for me it was just such a weird dichotomy to be you know on a day that I was landscaping somebody would be paying me to come in and take care of land that they didn't want to take care of And on a day that I was farming, there was this assumption that the landowner was doing me a favor by letting me take care of their land for them for free. And um, that kind of that is a really interesting thing about the difference, how we see, you know, landscaping versus farming in our society. Um, So over time, you know, I started to realize that I was actually doing the landowners a big favor, too, by coming and farming at their place and taking care of their land for them that they didn't want to take care of and giving them food and all that. And so over time, I kind of shifted what I was looking for in a landowner as well. And my current landowner has a much more grounded idea of what it takes to run a farm. She, she was a farmer herself. She understands what it is. She's grateful to have me there. So we have a really good understanding of what works, uh, both of us, You know what what we need to make the situation work. And so I feel very lucky to be where I'm at. But, you know, it's interesting because she can't guarantee me a long lease on that land. I mean, she's in her seventies. She doesn't want to tie her kids' hands, you know, after she passes away. She doesn't want to tell them what they can and can't do, you know? And so, um, you know, I don't have a long lease on that piece of land, even though she's a wonderful landowner, and even though she doesn't necessarily want me to go anywhere. So, that's another reason why i'm looking to do something a little different just because i would really like the security of knowing that i can stay somewhere i mean it's one thing if you know she's around for another 10 years and then something happens you know i'd be 50 and i don't really want to pick up and try to move to a new piece of land when i'm 50 you know
0: sure i know exactly how you're feeling (laughs) Before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links.
2: Join us for the fourth annual Free the Seeds Fair, Saturday, March 2nd, 9 to 3.30 at the Flathead Valley Community College Arts and Technology Building in Kalispell. As always, we'll be offering a free seed swap, 30 booths and over 20 workshops of information and free resources just for you. And for kids ages 8 and up, we'll have activities all day long. So come on down, get some growing on and it's free.
0: Free uh Mike and I have developed some lessons to help you create your very own organic oasis. We'll guide you through the steps to build your perfect natural landscape, an edible earth-friendly yard, a sustainable deep bed garden, or even start a pro- small profitable market farm. We'll show you how to save time, lower your produce bill, collect usable data, eat healthy nutritious food with minimal labor, Um, Use the most effective and efficient production methods currently being used in backyard gardens as well as market farms and maybe even help you find some profitable markets. We've designed it to save you time, lower your produce bill and help you eat healthy nutritious food. Um, There's checklists, there's outside reading, video assignments. Uh, You can join the online Facebook community where there's lots of people from around the world to help you get your garden started today. So remember, freegardencourse.com. I would say, let's get to the part of the show I call getting to the root of things. And like, um, these are kind of like shorter question answers, even though they don't always turn out that way, but they're supposed to be. So anyway, like, is there, like, do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden or on your farm? Like, is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do?
1: In the business, it would be marketing on the farm, it would be harvest for CSA.
0: And, and like what particularly about harvesting is just like that constant, (laughs) like having to be there because I always feel like that would, that's really hard for me, that consistency piece.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it gets in the way of doing the work. The interns always give me a hard time about it. They always remind me that this is what's, this is the reason why we're doing this is so we have this food to harvest. But to me, it's like, oh man, that's just taking time away from being able to Take
0: care of the garden. Uh, Well, because I, but I think that's being realistic because there's a lot of work that goes into harvesting. I think a lot of people think, oh, harvesting is the most fun. But to me, harvesting is fun when I'm just going down to pick a salad for me. Harvesting for Mike, when he's bending over, picking those green beans day after day, or I think about Joyce Pinson talking about having to go out in a hot, rainy, southern afternoon to pick okra because the okra is ripe and you have to like commit to picking it. if you leave it till the next day it's going to be you know you're not going to be able to sell it to market and just things like that like I think it's important to talk about that um for a business because I think some people kind of do have an idealistic view of what it would be like to be a full-time farmer um but there is that whole business aspect of it
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like no matter what the weather's doing, if it's a Tuesday and you've got to harvest for CSA that day, whether it's a lightning storm or whatever, you've still got to do it. And the other thing about being a full-time farmer is that if you're a full-time farmer, you're not a full-time farmer. You're, you know, you also have to be an accountant and a marketer and a, you know, web, a web guru and a social media maven and, All these other things, you know, that are very outside of the actual work that you love of farming. You know, if you want to run your own business of any type, you know, you have to do all of these other things as a small business owner that are outside of the work you love to do. And those are hard to get to make yourself do, you know, many farmers fail. I think Joel Salton says something about how many farmers fail because they don't have like the schmoozer what does he call it? Like the, you know, something, something schmoozer type that, you know, you got to have somebody who will like tell the story and sell the farm and sell your stuff, you know? And then as long as you have that person, if you have that, if you have somebody else who will do that for you, then great. You can spend your time in the field doing what you love. But if you have to do both, it can be a little bit challenging to pull your head up out of the ground, you know, and really, you know, do a social media post or whatever.
0: uh yeah and also like for me one of the hardest ones I always have is like you know getting the produce ready like and one of the things I really also looked at last year was like produce that I'm willing to eat is not necessarily what someone's going to want to buy for me at the store like you know there's a lot you have to be a lot pickier about the leaves of kale that you're bringing in or like, you know, what does that tomato look like? Or what is the, what do the beets look like when you pull them out of the ground or the carrots? Like presentation is huge and like getting it there fresh. Like if the farmer's market's at six o'clock at night, you can't, you know, you want to pick it in the morning and then like figuring out how am I going to present it? Is it going to be on ice or is it going to like, how am I going to keep it cool? How am I going to keep it looking like there's all those pieces. And then other people have talked about like flower farmers, like having to come back and wash all the buckets after the day. Like there's all these extra pieces, um, that is a lot different than just going out there enjoying the delicious taste of the vegetables.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's why I love CSA. And that's why I don't do market and I don't sell the restaurants anymore. And I don't sell the grocery stores anymore. I've tried all those other things. And the reason why I do the CSA is because I can tell these people, listen, this is what you're getting. And you should be damn glad that this is what you're getting because it's, yeah, we, I give them bok choy with holes in it from, you know, slug damage or whatever. I give them tomatoes that are cracked. I I mean, I'm not, we need to get over as a culture this idea that food needs to look perfect it doesn't need to look perfect and that's what's the beauty of a csa model is that the eater agrees to be on your schedule agrees that the producer is the one who calls the shots and if you know if i give you a radish that has a little wormhole in it cut it out and get on with your life you know
0: Oh, that's good to know because I was getting really worried there. I was like, man, this is going to be hard if we start to try, like, I was really looking at how, cause Mike grew a lot of Swiss chard and a lot of kale last year and we're getting like, he's getting to the point where he's grew like probably 10 times as much as he did the year before. And the year before that was probably four times as much as ever before. And like, as we keep growing, but I'm also, like I said, I'm thinking that, um, you know, are, are people going to be interested in buying that produce, uh what does it look like the funny thing is though I remember telling G Martin Fortier that I was like I don't know if I could ever have the energy to be a farmer but then after teaching and I see you know how much energy and time I put into that uh I probably could it's just a different you know anyway let's get to your favorite activity so if harvesting is tough what's your favorite thing to do in the garden
1: oh gosh I mean depends on the season uh maybe my favorite thing to do in the garden is to put manure on the beds in the fall
0: really well that's good to hear where do you get your manure from in the city because that's something you know another thing we talk about a lot we're always looking for dirt and sources of peat and manure and things because we're constantly expanding and i know listeners have talked to me like where do you find good quality manure in Boise?
1: right you just (laughs) exactly uh you know same way you find land I guess you just sort of listen up and hear somebody has horses or whatever you know oh what you doing with the manure and of course it matters what they eat and you know for me even more so than what they eat uh is how is how do I have to get the manure like do I have to go somewhere and shovel it out of a field and wheelbarrow it into the back of my truck and deliver it back to my place? Or is there, you know, somebody who has a loader that can just load it right in for me or I can pay somebody with a dump trailer to drop it off or whatever. At this, again, this is a part of my getting lazier in my older age, but I'm, more interested i think in those kinds of things it's like if someone has a dump trailer i'm all ears you know and i figure if i at least let it sit for a year before i put it on it's probably fine no matter what was going on with it before you know and i know that's risky but i've yet to have many problems with it and um you know i think probably it's fair to say that a lot of the people that are raising the horses that i've been dealing with are you know they're you know i mean guppies for lack of a better word you know they're Conscientious, and they're thinking about it, and they're probably feeding them groovy stuff and all that, not giving them tons of weird antibiotics and stuff. Is my guess, but I've never, I don't usually ask. I, I just usually take when I hear that there's free manure to be had. I usually just get a hold of it in whatever capacity and let it sit for a while if I can, and let it rest and figure that everything will, you know, the compost pile is a marvelous thing. <laughs> And it can really break down a lot of stuff. And I have yet to have problems by doing that.
0: Good to know. Uh, What's the best gardening advice you've ever received? I'm sure there's tons of it. You've been just dropping so many golden seeds. I know listeners are going to be really enjoying this episode.
1: Gosh. Best gardening advice.
0: Um, Or farming advice.
1: Hmm. I mean, I guess the best advice is to find your niche. You know, find a thing to do in your garden or on your farm that you love to do, that you think is interesting, that is unique in your area, so that people will seek you out for that specific thing. So for me, that's become the seeds.
0: Mm. Uh Good to know for sure. That's i I've been struggling with trying to figure out what my niche is. And I guess I kind of like, like I said, I've been working on this garden course and I kind of think that I've decided that it's building like an organic oasis. Like it's not just focusing on vegetables, but like an entire place that you love to live and enjoy. And if that means like harvesting all your food for a year, like it does for Mike, or if it means more like somebody like me who's going to be working full time and just is not going to dedicate my whole summer or like you 16 summers in a row to um growing food like you know what is that organic oasis look like for um my listeners so anyway yeah niching is so important so what's your favorite tool like if you had to move and could only take one tool with you what would it be what could you not live without that's what i usually say well
1: <laughs> okay. well that's uh, impossible question because <laughs> you know because you need to have a way to to work the soil but um so there has to be either I mean if I don't have if I have to have one I guess it would be a shovel but if if that's all I can take is one it would be a shovel but if if I had a way that the soil was worked I would choose a hula ho and I and not just any hula ho uh you know one of those red ones that you buy from Johnny's. Not one of those crappy ones you buy from the store. And what does that do? And Get rid of the weeds? It's like a, a stirrup hoe. Yeah, a scuffle hoe. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you hoe out the weeds with it. We use them all the time. I mean, I use them like hours and hours and hours every week in the summer.
0: Uh... You are not the first one to say that. A lot of people have said that. How about a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden or something you like to eat?
1: Green bean tacos.
0: Ooh, how do you make those?
1: You steam green beans. And then while you're doing that, you saute some onions and garlic and whatever else you have, peppers, tomatillos, whatever, in a pan with olive oil, cumin, lots of cumin, salt. And then as soon as the green beans are tender, you put those in there with them you... Get it really good and gooey and covered in that cuminy sauce, and then you put it into a corn tortilla or uh, something like that with you know sour cream or whatever. But they're delicious. They're like our CSA member cult favorite. Everyone looks forward to when the green beans start coming so we can all have green bean tacos.
0: Oh my gosh, I can't wait to make those, because Mike is like, one of his favorite crops is green beans, and I'm always looking for something to do with them. And yeah, I can actually make them right now, probably, because he has green beans that he canned from last summer.
1: Well, I would recommend if you're, don't judge them, don't, if you try them with the canned and then you don't like them, don't judge them by that. Give them a chance to be fresh, too.
0: Okay, good to know. Uh, how about a favorite internet resource? Is there anywhere you like to surf on the web? Hmm. You know, I think, I think I just, I learn a lot
1: from the other small regional seed companies. So, I mean, I would like to say that our seed company has a nice website, you know, Snake River Seeds has a nice website, but like anybody, any bioregional seed company, whatever the bio, the small bioregional seed company in your area is, I think they generally have really good, just you know obviously the things that are growing they're not like not a company like you know territorial or somebody where you know they're based in a certain place but they're buying seeds from all over the world like a like a little company that is doing really good stuff you know who has a really good resource actually for that list is rocky mountain seed alliance their their website is i think it's like rockymountainsseeds.org or something and it is they have a list of small scale bioregional seed companies that you can like search on a map and they also have a map for seed libraries in the country so depending on where you are you can find the ones that are closest to you and get in touch with them that way
0: excellent uh yeah we've gotten seeds from them before too uh how about a favorite reading material like a book or a magazine or a website or anything that you can recommend Mm -hmm. i mean you just recommended the seed alliance but
1: Yeah, I think that for me, Wendell Berry has been pretty profound, pretty impactful. And Vonda Nashiva, too, although I think I prefer to listen to her speak than I do read her writing. But um, yeah, Wendell Berry's been really helpful for me. That's not a how-to, obviously. He's anything but a how-to. You know, and Yes Magazine, too, actually. Yes Magazine's been really great, you know, because they're that kind of positive solutions oriented journalism and they focus on all sorts of different things, but sometimes they focus on environmental stuff or food or whatever. And I I really enjoy reading kind of this comprehensive uh, take on one certain topic and all the ways that people are working together to like solve these problems rather than just identifying the problems, which Wendell Berry is very good at identifying
0: the problems,
2: (laughs) I
0: know. I wish this magazine would have like a new show or something that you could watch yeah, on TV. Totally. Uh, they're a, definitely a great resource. Um, yeah. how about, I mean, you've given a ton of business advice, but like, do you have any advice for like how to get started selling produce or get started in the industry? Like, is there like, if you had to start over from scratch from day one, like what's the first thing that you would do differently? Hmm honestly, I wouldn't do anything differently.
1: And I think that the, and I think that the, the way that I see the, the, in all the people that I've trained to come through my farm and as they start their own projects or they want to start their own projects, I think that honestly, where I see people getting into the most trouble is by trying to do too much research to begin with. And they get too bogged down in all of the particulars of what is going on. And And I feel like in some ways, like, I'm glad that I didn't know what the hell I was doing when I started. I'm glad I just like walked out into a field with a shovel and started digging. Because if I would have known, if I knew then what I know now, I would never have started my farm. Like I wouldn't, you know, it's too hard. It's just too hard. So if you think you want to start a farm, just freaking start one and just figure it out as you go. I don't know, as my grandpa, here's a good piece of advice. This is what my grandpa says. If you go looking for rules,
0: you'll find them. This is awesome advice. Because it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine whose husband's an entrepreneur. And he's not in the farming business. But she just keeps worrying that he's never going to make it. And the money's not going to come in. And just like, is he just chasing this, you know shiny object. And I'm like, well, you just have to look at it as the business he's trying right now may or may not succeed. Yes. Entrepreneurs fail, but he's learning all these lessons and eventually he probably will get the right shiny penny. And he'll have all these lessons from this other thing that maybe didn't work. And I, I, and I think, you know, that's where you're coming to trying to figure out where's your next phase. And I, I think all of our journeys are important, whether it's, um, You know, wherever you start. So I think that's awesome advice to tell people just go for it and try it. And um, I don't know, I always call our failures stepping stones to success. So that's right. Plus, 2018, my motto was um, life happens for you, not to you. Life happens for you, not to you. And my motto for 2019 is motivation is earned, not given. Like if you want things to get easier, like mostly I'm thinking about like running and trying to become a better runner and exercising more. Like it's like the days that you go out there and do it, that you don't want to do it. That's going to make your training, like being more in training. Uh, anyway, I'm supposed to be quiet and let you do the talking. Okay. So here's my final question. It's a total doozy. If there's one change you would like to see, Casey, to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale?
1: Hmm. Well, I, I mean, I don't know about the most. All the issues are interconnected, right? So the solutions are interconnected as well. But I feel like you know at least where I've decided to focus my energy and dedicate my work is to the idea of seed sovereignty so like if 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 we work globally if we each work in our own individual places to grow and steward seeds that work for us in our places that really does a huge amount to combat all of these really massive problems associated with climate change and loss of biodiversity. And like kind of a globalized um, system that is creating more and more wealth inequality and making certain people slaves to other people and all of that stuff kind of unravels by us having our own selection of locally saved seeds that we freely share among each other in our in our regional areas and how we uh, by doing that we're creating you know culture we're creating uh, delicious food, we're creating nourishment, abundance, sustenance, all this stuff at the same time as combating some of these massive global challenges.
0: That was perfect. What a great answer. Uh, Well, not that you haven't dropped like a million, but do you have an inspirational tip to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden?
1: Hmm. Well, there's a quote by Mark Twain that says, opportunity is missed by many people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work.
0: I love that. What a perfect way to end Casey. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Now tell everybody your social media channels and how they can connect with you and where they can find your website. Sure.
1: Yeah. You can find our seeds at snake And I think we have like a, we have a Facebook page and a Instagram and all that stuff and someone else besides me manages it. So it's really well taken care of. So if you want to look into our seeds and what we're working on in our Intermountain West bioregion, SnakeRiverSeeds.com. And um, as far as my little farm project, it's called Earthly Delights Farm, and I am horrible at all methods of marketing and social media with Earthly Delights. But we do have have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram. I just hardly ever use them. So Snake River Seeds is where you can really get the kind of the good stuff and actually have like engaged people getting back to you and stuff like that.
0: (laughs) But earthly delights has lots of information and your blog is just, I know listeners will want to check it out at least. And um, it's just really delightful and elegant. And uh, I think they're going to love your story. And thank you so much for sharing with us today. And just, I wish you the best with everything. And I know um, a lot of us are going to, Learn with your next step because I think going online for you is going to be um, like a game changer for the planet. You have so <laughs> wow, much to you. share with people that people are interested in and people need to know. Like just your so many lessons about how to create a, mar- a market that's successful is just huge and seed saving and and everything that you've done. I I love your um, internship course. Like I just. It's like so put together so well. So anyway, thanks so much for joining us. And I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes. So if listeners go to the Organic Gardener podcast, they can just click and find it pretty easy for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was fun. Well, thank you. I'm glad you have fun.
2: Join us for the fourth annual Free the Seeds Fair, Saturday, March 2nd, 9 to 3.30 at the Flathead Valley Community College Arts and Technology Building in Kalispell. As always, we'll be offering A free seed swap, 30 booths, and over 20 workshops of information and free resources just for you. And for kids ages 8 and up, we'll have activities all day long. So come on down, get some growing on, and it's free.
0: Hey there, green future growers. Would you like your friends and neighbors to create an organic oasis too? Would you like others in your area to learn about earth-friendly practices for their gardens and yards? If so, we would love it if you would share the Organic Gardener podcast with your local community or college radio station today. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.